Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, we'll talk tax and its impact on the lives of taxpayers and tax professionals. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. If you know any tax professionals or follow any on social media, you know that this tax season has been particularly hard. It's true that it's been long and exhausting, but it's not just the long hours. It's the collateral burden that tax professionals are taking on from their clients, the ones who are losing businesses, jobs, and livelihoods during COVID. I talked about this a little bit a few podcast episodes back when I talked with Gina Cho about the need for self-care. And one of the things that we specifically touched on is how it can be hard to admit that you're not okay in the middle of all of this. And I'm not just talking about tax professionals. I'm talking about all of us, including taxpayers and filers collectively. But I specifically reference tax professionals for two reasons. One, I'm a tax professional. Specifically, I'm a tax lawyer. And two, the level of stress and anxiety that I'm witnessing from my colleagues is something that I've never seen in my career before. Stress can manifest itself in a lot of different ways, some of which can be destructive. A 2016 study conducted by the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation and the American Bar Association's Commission of Lawyer Assistance Programs had some key findings. An estimated 7% of adults in the U.S. qualify as problem drinkers, but that number hits 21 to 36% among currently practicing attorneys. 28% of attorneys report mild or high levels of depression, much higher than in the general population. And 19% of attorneys are struggling with clinically significant anxiety. Those numbers are concerning, but we are not having enough conversations about the implications of that data. And when it does come up, we're not always supportive of each other. On Twitter, a fellow tax professional mentioned that this was her last year preparing tax returns because she just couldn't take it anymore. And she was met with a collective line of just toughen up. We're supposed to figure it out or fight through it. We don't like talking about it. So I wanted to dedicate an episode to stigma and how it's okay to admit that this time we're living in is difficult or that it's affecting you badly. And I wanted to have this conversation with someone who understands the struggle and can be real about what it means. So I immediately thought of Brian Cuban. Brian Cuban, the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur Mark Cuban, is a Dallas-based attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate. He is a graduate of Penn State University and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Brian has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April of 2007. His first book, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder, chronicles his firsthand experience living with and recovering from 27 years of eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder. Brian's most recent best-selling book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, is an unflinching look back at how addiction and other mental health issues destroyed his career as a once successful lawyer and how he and others in the profession redefined their lives in recovery and found redemption. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So our audience is a lot more broad than just lawyers, but some of these themes that we're going to talk about are universal. And um, that starts with your book, I think. While you're a lawyer, your story is kind of bigger than the legal profession. So can you kind of give us some an idea of what led you to write the book? Sure. First off, everything we're going to talk about is universal, right? Yes. Uh, tax preparers suffer from eating disorders. Tax preparers suffer from depression. 
Tax preparers suffer from addiction. Tax preparers go through childhood trauma. So I think everything we'll touch on is across the board. Now, how it affects different professions based on different personality types, that may shift. Right. I'm in long-term recovery, as I sit here today, from uh, traditional bulimia, which is binging and purging, exercise bulimia, which is obsessive-compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. Yes, guys do get eating disorders. About 20 to 25% of all those with eating disorders are male. And you want to talk about stigma, there is just a massive stigma around men with eating disorders and body image issues. Oh, I'm sure. I, I grew up in the South, the rural South. You know, it's hard for women to talk about that. So I can imagine that it's even harder for men, especially in parts of the country, because there's this idea about success and how you should look a certain way. But I think that with men, it's just sort of supposed to come more naturally. I think women are expected to work at it. <laughs> no, you're right. And especially in the more, and I talk about this, the Gen X and boomer demographics where we were, where there were different social norms, mm-hmm. right? Men are the breadwinners, men are the protectors, this and that. So it can be uh, that much more stigmatizing. Right. All of which, and I'm a boomer. I'm also in long-term recovery from uh, substance use disorder, alcohol, and cocaine. And I will have, uh, I am now moving on 14 years on all of those in abstinence. That's amazing. I wrote about the, the addicted lawyer. The reason I wrote it is because as I moved through the practice of law and went through the roller coaster of having some good years and then having no no years and no career, and it all kind of circled down the toilet, circling around all of these issues within me, the childhood trauma, the eating disorders, the drug addiction, the alcohol, and all of them unresolved, just spinning and spinning and spinning. I was not the only lawyer going through these things. I did cocaine with lawyers. I drank with lawyers. I knew other lawyers who struggled with eating issues, but uh, we just didn't talk about it. It was something that needed to be brought out into the open with stories. Right. Because storytelling is one of the most powerful stigma-breaking tools there is. Right. And in your book, you actually talk about a lot of different kinds of addiction and a lot of different levels of recovery. And I thought that was really interesting because I do think that sometimes we, in our heads, think that it's a, it's a very linear path. And it was really interesting to see how, in some cases, there were folks who felt that they recovered and didn't. And then others, a lot of it depends on the support that you receive and not only your own attitude, but kind of the place that you are. And I think that's what's sort of interesting when you talk about law firms, because even though I said that I thought your story was bigger than the law, there are parts of it, I think, that are peculiar to the profession. For example, you noted that law firm culture can both encourage the behavior and discourage recovery. Why do you think that is? Law firm culture at the time I wrote the book, I think we are changing, although if you ask 10 different big law lawyers how much we're changing, you'll probably get 10 different viewpoints. Right. <laughs> because it was, you're, at the time I wrote the book, you still have this overwhelming stigma that uh, lawyers are weak in vulnerability if, if we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, right? Right. We don't talk about our problems. We don't go to our partner or an associate because it's going to impact our jobs. It's going to impact our ability to earn a living, to maintain a lifestyle. So it's better just to try to do what we do, a profession of thinkers, outthink the problem, right. which with addiction and depression and things of that nature, that's, that's impossible. 
Right. Some of those things start as early as law school. I mean, you mentioned being fearful about jobs. I mean, that was one of the things that was cited as a top, a top obstacle for seeking help is this notion about if I say something, how might it affect my career? And I know that there are states that still ask questions about your mental health on the bar application that I think when you're in law school, you're worried that you might not be able to explain your way out of. And I had a friend, I, th I think I told you on Twitter a while back that I had a friend who did not seek help her final year of law school. She also did not take her medication because she was terrified of admitting that on the bar application. And I think she felt if her counseling was far enough removed that she could honestly say on the application that, that it wasn't a problem, but she wasn't taking her medication. And we watched things happen. We watched her leave bars at 2 a.m. and not know where she was going because she wouldn't let us walk her home. It was hard to watch as a law student and not also know how to help. Absolutely. And at the time I went through these things at Pitt Law, there was nothing. We right. didn't have a dean of students uh, at that time. This was 1983 to 86. Deans of students really were our kind of a recent development in, the, in those terms. We didn't have a, uh, that I was aware of a lawyer's, if it existed, I wasn't aware of of a lawyer's assistance program that helped law students. In the time I went through this, Kelly, we were having hard alcohol ragers in our student lounge oh, on wow. weekends. There was just a different culture. And we were going out weekends, the bar reviews, the this and that. And what law students do in my anecdotal experience and from the studies I've seen is what there is what I call the kick the can syndrome. Mm -hmm. If I admit this, it's going to suck. It's right. going to create these problems. So I'll kick the can. I can beat this. I'll kick the can to my second year. I'll kick the can to my third year. I'll kick the can of my addiction or depression into the practice of law. And we keep kicking the can until the consequences catch up to the problem, where all of a sudden there's a, uh, there is a bar issue, right? All of a sudden there is misconduct, malpractice. Very common. Right. Very common. Look in the back of any bar journal. And well, it may not be listed depending on the jurisdiction, what the issue is, a substantial portion of those reprimands and censures and uh, suspensions and disbarments are going to be uh, correlated to some type of substance use. Well, and I went, I went to law school um, a little later than you did, but we still had, I mean, we didn't have ragers <laughs> in school areas, but we still had uh, this idea that if you could go out and drink and come back and still be a lawyer, that somehow that was super impressive. And I, I remember specifically, so I uh, went to law school in Philadelphia and um, big Irish population. So St. Patrick's Day is a big deal. And we actually all took off one day in the middle of the day to go to a St. Patrick's Day like party at a, at a bar. And there was one student, I remember this vividly. I think anybody who was in my con law class remembers as well. He drank a lot, a lot. He was a big guy, but he drank a lot. We all went back to school where most of us sat down. I mean, most of us were not as, as far gone as he was, but we all sat down in the room and just listened to the lecture. There was a question from the con law professor and he raised his hand and we were all like, oh gosh, like, what's he going to say? And he, gave, he got up and he gave this speech. And it was at the time, you know, we all thought, wow, like, how did he pull that out? And he got such kudos for being able to deliver this eloquent speech on constitutional rights while completely drunk. 
And the professor, of course, didn't notice. I do see when, again, when I was reading your book, you do see how those moments, I think that's a reinforcement, right? So he thought, I can still do this. Let me give you the other spectrum of that. Okay. Okay. I did my mood court intoxicated. I was getting drunk most nights. There was one night I had been out all night. I didn't know where my books were. I was drunk. I showed up for my civil procedure class intoxicated. I'm sitting in the back, shrinking in my seat, and there's a jurisdictional problem on the board, probably Pinoy or Neff or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get as small as I can in my seat. I smell. I've been out all night. My seatmates are distancing from me. (laughs) Mr. Cuban. Oh, man. Can you answer this on the blackboard? Professor, I forgot my books. I'm sorry. Pause. The Socratic method at work. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Cuban, when you say you're not ready, do you mean if I phrased it this way? Professor, I'm, please go on to someone else. Well, Mr. Cuba, when you say please go on to someone else, I uttered an ex- expletive about him, jumped up and ran out of the, and ran out of the room. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to utter an expletive at their civil pro, civ pro professor, but my voice carries. And uh, <laughs> that's the other spectrum of that. That wasn't a speech. That wasn't an right. eloquent speech. <laughs> right. I mean, again, I don't want to in any way glamorize what, what this guy did, but I remember being struck by it because I come from a, a very different background than a lot of the folks that were in my law school. And I just remember thinking that I always thought there would be an immediate bad consequence to what sure. was perceived as bad behavior. And sure. when that didn't happen, I remember thinking like, wow, like, I don't know if he's lucky. I don't know how that happened that way. But I do see how if that behavior continues and if you get support, because he was, I'm not kidding. Like there was a lot of backslapping afterwards and it was how, that was awesome. For every him, there's a Brian. Right, right. <laughs> so, and that's, that's interesting. Again, that was one of the things that, again, that was in the book that was really interesting is that there is a, a real spectrum of how the behavior affects different individuals. You also had a conversation with Brian Tannenbaum, who is an attorney and a published author like you are. And he noted that ego often gets in the way of not only your chances at recovery, but also for people to help support you. He mentioned specifically, uh, he talked about how lawyers like to show the world that everything is great. And that's a theme, actually, that Jeff Grant and I had talked about a, a few uh, episodes back because Jeff is a lawyer who also had a substance abuse problem, and he eventually made a mistake that landed him in prison for a white-collar crime. He committed fraud with his SBA loans. But he, one of the things he talked about was how difficult it was for him to say that he had a problem because he was the attorney driving the nice car, living in the nice house with the seemingly perfect family. Sure. I know this is manifests itself in other professions too, but what do you think it is about the profession that makes it so hard to admit that things aren't perfect? And I think I just take a brief step back. This is something, as you said, that manifests itself across the board, whether you're, it can be somebody who works at a fast food restaurant can be stigmatized from getting help. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with we uh, ego, type a personalities, uh, the type of per- people who may, be, who may find the law attractive. We are, if you look at the Myers-Briggs, we are a profession of thinkers with how the letters come out. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, a very small percentage like me are feelers, about 4.5%, I think it was, but we are a profession of thinkers. We are a profession of people who are culturalized, and I like to use the words educationalized through law school. And maybe even before that, depending on how you grew up, what you went through in college, 
that it is weakness to be vulnerable. It is weakness to see help. And then you move into a profession that just magnifies that where everyone's backslapping and it's competitive, hyper-competitive, who has this, who has that. And it can become even that more ingrained that I am just not going to tell anyone. I'm not even going to admit it to myself. Right. And you put that in a bubble on top of the uh, issues everyone has addiction where uh, it's very difficult to be self-aware as it is because that means you have to step back from the problem. I also found that really fascinating is that you mentioned that there were times when you were pretty high functioning, yes, which can make it harder to admit that there's a problem. And, and I've seen this. I mean, I have friends that could get so sloppy drunk on the weekend that they couldn't tell you where they had been or what they had been doing. But Monday morning, they were still in a suit doing their job. I think that idea can maybe make you think that you're not as bad as someone that you might see like in an alleyway, you know? So it gives you this idea that you're bulletproof, like I'm not as bad as someone else. Absolutely. How do you convince yourself that's not true? Like, I know you had a moment. Let's start off by just proving the premise, okay? Okay. There is no such thing as a high-functioning lawyer when alcohol and drugs uh, use is concerned. I call it the Peter Principle of Recovery. There is only a loss of functioning that may be small and imperceptible to others, mm-hmm. right? But you have this level of functioning where when you're sober and then you're going, and then you have, it takes its toll. And so what we have is the perception, it just may be small at first. You're getting the verdict, you're getting this, you're getting that. But addiction is cumulative. Stress is cumulative. Depression can be cumulative. And so what happens is, there's a called the Peter principle, right? You work up to your level of incompetence. The level of incompetence may be lowering, but we keep ducking under it right? to tell ourselves that we are performing to maximum ability. And because of the stigma, people around us may see us, but because we are showing up in court, because we are rainmaking, because we are billing, they don't say a word. Even though the level of functioning is dropped, is dropping until it drops off a cliff, and then they wish they would have said a word, right? When you when uh, the malpractice carriers get involved, right? Well, and I guess relatedly, how do you know if this is something you don't feel comfortable like saying? That's cool, but like, how do you know when it's a problem? I know you're not a diagnostic person in terms of. I you can know. tell you how I knew it was a problem. Right. I can tell you how we can build a compassionate community so others can notice what's going on with the people around him and respond appropriately without being judgmental. Right. That's what I want to know, because your sequence of events was dramatic. But like, where is the line? Because because I, I get that we can we can read your book and understand that, you know, there are cer- certain things that would be that would be danger signals, you know, but just because you're not doing coke in the bathroom doesn't mean everything's good. Like a lot of us have those days when we just want to drink, you know, like, wow, what yeah. an awful day I want to drink. So where when do you know that you need help? That's a great question. Where do you know you need help is one either defined by consequences or your environment. OK, OK. Or, What's going on around? So if there are consequences, obviously, that's a big indicator that maybe you need to do something. But that doesn't even always drive people to do something because of that. So we have to depend on the community around us. I call it compassionate community. Okay. We have to depend on the community around us understanding the signs. Okay. And that doesn't mean when somebody decides to go out for a night and have some drinks, oh, my goodness, right? Mm -hmm. That's, That's just awful. It means that when you are, you you take it upon yourself to learn what the signs are. Are there patterns? Are you noticing different things? And then what is the structure put in place where I can reach out either within that structure the firm has, or if it's it's solo and small firm, 
How can I reach out non-judgmentally? What can I learn? What mechanisms can I put in place in my toolbox so I can reach out and just say I care? Right. And if it maybe it is just okay, a one-night offer, and, and that's fine. But you can reach out in ways and say, "Hey, I care about you," and uh, not mind your own business without it being, "Hey, you." Right. These are tools I think we have a profession as a profession, whether it's lawyers, tax preparers, whatever, have an obligation to our profession and to each other to put these tools in place to take care of each other. I think that's hard because I, I was, as you were talking about, you know, being compassionate, I remember being at a bar function and one of my friends was in the hallway the whole time. And I thought that was odd. And I went outside. I'm like, why aren't you coming in? And he said, because he was in recovery and he couldn't be around alcohol. And I thought it's so odd because the entire function, it was, it was a a state bar function. The entire function was basically created around Absolutely. drinks. In fact, I remember we had drink tickets, but you had to pay for soda. And uh, Absolutely. And we are seeing a huge paradigm shift with regards to things like that on a broader scale, the ABA and everything like that. But uh, in terms of messaging, but in conferences still, you have to remember most of the rec- conferences I attend and such are recovery oriented. So sure. <laughs> we're not seeing a lot of that. But you go to the ABA conference to the private rooms, right? Mm-hmm. To the private suites from or the... Uh, some of the more profession-specific conferences that don't have this messaging. I'll give you an example, Kelly. This was just maybe a year and a half ago. I was at another conference. Someone, and I'm not going to name the conference because I did reach out to them and uh, send them the photos. And that the, I wasn't licensed there. I, I didn't think it was my place to speak for them. Right. Someone from a conference sent me photos. It was their main amenity room. Just bottles of top shelf everywhere. No Diet Cokes, no this, no that. Right. There were some elections coming up. And the election sign said so-and-so better when he smashed. Oh my God. Wow. I, I mean, this was just a year and a half ago. Wow. The ABA, and there's a lot of good top-down messaging. One of the things I stress on is the messaging at the top with big law and stuff is there, right? Because that's where the money is. Mm-hmm. How is this messaging getting down to where the most of the profession resides? Right. Mall, the solo, the boutique. Right. I don't know that it is in the way we need it to. So how does that change? Is, is this something that we, do we push the ABA or the AICPA or the NAEA? Like, No, I mean, the ABA, again, is, I'm not here to bash the ABA. They're doing great work. They put out their toolkit. Uh, they did. They help with the study. They, they are doing great work, but it's a different type of selling point when you get below a certain level. Let me give you a great example that, that spells it out in the book, The Elephant in the Room. Mm-hmm. Last year, I had lunch with one of my buddies, a partner at a medium-sized firm about 60, above about 60 people here in Dallas. We've been friends for years, and we catch up for lunch now and then. So we're, we're sitting there, and he's asking about how my work is going, and I bring up the study. He said, Brian, do you want to hear, basically like this, do you want to hear an ugly truth? Okay. <laughs> People at my level don't care about this stuff. Wow. I don't, we don't know about ABA studies. I, I, could, I really couldn't even tell you what my Borgia system programs does. From my perspective, suck it up or move on. And you may live in your bubble of recovery warriors, but you're kidding yourself if you think that your view is the mainstream view below where all the, all the uh, messaging is. 
because here's what's important to me. My excellent service to my clients, Mm -hmm. my family, maintaining the lifestyle of my family. Right. If a lawyer has a struggle, I want that lawyer to get help, but that is not my problem. Wow. And that was hard for me to listen to, but it was important for me to listen to. I'm getting right. angry and I'm sweating. <laughs> and, uh, but, it was an imp- but it was important here. And it really refocused me in terms of, okay, how do we reach that? How, how do we change that? How do you sell wellness, for the lack of a better term, at that level? Right. And, and, and I don't know that there's an easy answer. I think the local bars do what they can. The Lord's assistance programs do what they can. For a lot of it, Kelly, I think it's going to be a generational change, right? Mm-hmm. People, the boomer generation is used to having the stock bar in their partner's cabinet. I'm Gen X and we had that too. So <laughs> I think a lot of this is going to change as generations change over when the millennials and younger than that are on the masthead. Do you think working from home, you talk about shifting culture. I mean, this is something that's happening, happening a lot now. Do you think working at home is potentially good for that? Or do you think that it could be? worse. You know, you don't have the big blowout parties necessarily, and you don't have the partner with the wine bottle in his drawer, which I had as well. We had, I mean, not, I didn't have the wine bottle, but I had the partner with the wine bottle in his drawer. It's a different, you know, dynamic when you're working from home. So maybe the peer pressure isn't there, but there's also not the support. Do you think that's going to change the way that the profession views things moving forward? Oh, there's no question. I mean, there's no question that things are going to change. I don't know how fast they'll change. But remember, we have to break this out, okay? Working from home is good for who? It's going to depend on the person, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, If someone is in recovery and isolation is a trigger to them, that's not a good thing. Right. If somebody was just hanging on and they're not yet tipping over into a substance use disorder, but isolation is a trigger to them, that is not a good thing. Right. So we have to look at it. This is going to be very person dependent. but. One of the things I learned in recovery is you can't demand that your environment adjust to you. You have to develop the coping tools, the skills, and the routines that allow you to adapt to the environment, unless you want to change careers. How do you do that? It was hard for me. It was hard for me. I had to uh, really change to planning better. I I, I went through a serious... uh, depressive episode of loss of hope and baby boomer uh, a reflection on mortality because feeling that I'm 59 years old and my life is being burned away with so much of it already have been burned away through addiction. Right. And that really caused some depression in me. So it took me a while to refocus my compassionate community and get myself back on track with, with purpose. Right. And I can't tell anyone how to do that, but I can say that it's, for me, it was easier to do it with the people around me. I can call it my compassionate community wheel. Who are the people who support me? And who are the people that I support? Am I calling them? Are they calling me? And am I projecting that they have kids? They don't want to hear my problems. I'm not going to call. And then all of a sudden, I'm just sitting there alone. Right. When they want to help. I hear that all the time, the projection everyone's going through this. They have their own problems. She has kids. They have their kids. I can't burden them. Burden them. They're part of your compassionate <laughs> community. Right. It's really interesting hearing you talk about like generations and where you are. 
I am hopeful that things are changing for future generations. But I know the thing that worries me a lot, just kind of in context of COVID, is the economy. Because when I came out of law school, there were jobs aplenty. And then shortly thereafter, there were not. I think you kind of referenced uh, a, a similar thing in your book, but you know, this idea that you go to law school because you may be the personality type that's saying, you know, I'm an achiever, I'm going to do well. And, and again, you see this with CPAs and other professions as well. Like I'm, I'm the kind of person who's going to do something with my life, right? And then the economy makes that hard. So the jobs aren't there. You have student loans. You get overwhelmed. And we saw that a lot, uh, you know, in, in the recession, like around 2008. And that's what I fear now, because I'm seeing colleagues talk about the fact that they're, they're scared to turn down work, even though they're exhausted, because they're worried that the work will dry up. And if the work dries up, what happens to me? Because I think there's a lot of self-worth, you know, wrapped up in this idea that I'm only as good as my billables. Absolutely. And I'm only as good as my thoughts. And, and, that, right. and that's what that is, right? Uh, it, far be it for me to tell anyone what this unique time in history should mean to them and people I don't know and, you know, and how you have to get through this, right? Right. Talk about generalities. Then I can tell you what I've learned as I go through my self-doubt during this. And I have to say to myself over and over again, and it's, it's part of cognitive behavioral therapy. I've been in therapy for 15 years. I think everyone can use a little therapy. <laughs> Agreed. I've had to learn, and it's hard. My thoughts are not facts. What do I have control over this moment? What do I have control over today? What do I not have control over? Because the moment my thoughts become facts, I'm going up and I'm pull, pulling up the John Hopkins COVID sites going, refresh, refresh, refresh. Oh my right. God, there's another month I'm alone. Oh my God, there's another one, right? Mm -hmm. I would be disingenuous to acknowledge that I haven't gone through a lot of this in privilege. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I have to acknowledge that. I have health insurance. I have a support, I have a strong family support, and I have strong support with my wife. And I have a unique situation with, with you know, with my last name. And so there is privilege. Yes. Right. The thoughts are not facts. It, it can be universal in the industrialized world. And so every day I have to think about where my, where my negative thought loops are. What do I really have control over this moment? My kids. You know, what am I doing? Well, I don't have any kids, but I'm just giving an example. My pets, my book, what am I going to do with my book, my speaking, what, what am I doing with that, my videos, keeping it small. And I learned this in recovery as well. Keep it small. Keep it focused. And I think that is what I do. I'm not telling anyone else what they need to do. Right. But this is, this is a universal that people learn in therapy. Thoughts are not facts. When, when you move forward in recovery, do you find it helpful? to be around other people that are in recovery? I know you, you mentioned earlier that someone kind of referred to it as your recovery lawyer's bubble, but do you find that helpful? That's a great question. When I first got sober in, in April 2007, it was, it was not just helpful, it was necessary. Okay. Uh, I got sober in 12-step, and for people who don't know, Alcoholics Anonymous is the most well-known of the alcohol-focused 12-step groups. Mm -hmm. They had what's called 100 meetings in 100 days. I was going twice a day, three times a day. I needed to be around that because at the very beginning, the pullback to my own lifestyle was brutal. Okay. Uh, the pullback to the cocaine dealers, the pullback to the bars. I need to be part of that. I need to be part of that. My self-worth was tied to that. 
And there are corollaries to present time because our self-worth can be tied to an old routine. Right. And so we have to form new routines. So yes, at that time was important. Is it as important to me now? I love my recovery community. I love the recovery capital of my peer group and the people I speak with and the other people I speak to. And that is that helps me in my recovery. And so, but it's just a different dynamic that it is today, almost 14 years later than it was when I first went in, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, I, it's just, it was interesting because, you know, you, you hear people talk about this in different ways and some people will say, I can't be around anything that has to do with my old lifestyle. And, and if that's the case, I think that makes continuing in the profession difficult or it could. And it is the case for me on certain things. Alcohol, I can be around it. No problem. When I put myself in a situation where uh, somebody was lining out a lot of cocaine, no freaking way. Right. Okay, because I know I know that would that could be bad news for me. I still struggle with body image issues. My biggest recovery challenge is my relationship with exercise and food. It's not it's not alcohol. Interesting. So yeah, you have to figure you you have to figure it out, and I and I figure it out, and I'm constantly redefining what I'm figuring out on a daily basis. So I think that's fascinating too, because I think especially in something like the legal profession, there's a very definite path. You, if you're going to do big law, you know, seven years, you make partner, like there's a very definite path. If, if the idea in recovery or even just general self-help, honestly, is that you could redefine yourself, that doesn't fit that model. Will we talk about how the profession responds to it? And I know you said like the ABA has been great, but what can law firms do differently? What if I can't be around the, again, not even just for recovery purposes, but for self-help, like maybe I don't want to be around the same kinds of people that I was before, but networking is such a huge part of being a lawyer. I mean, there, there are times when you are expected to stand there, drink in hand and smile. Like, how do you reconcile those things? And, and should it be the law firm's responsibility or is it something you should have to do on your own? That's a great question. Within Big Law, within AM Law, there is so much of, of what's being poured into the res- so many of the resources that are being poured into wellness and, and these types of things are within that bubble. Okay. So if you work at a big law firm, there's probably going to be things in place. There's probably going to be much different messaging already that over two years after the studies come out. Mm-hmm. If you work at a big law firm, well, the individual pressuring could be there, and that's going to be to depend on the firm. And I hear it from associates saying, well, they talk this, but they're doing this. Right. But there are probably going to be more, there are much, a, a much stouter framework in place for to make alternate choices. Sure. From that standpoint, again, the me- what happens below that is the, is the issue. Okay. What I learned in recovery, Kelly, again, is that, okay, yes, we want things to change, but I have to take responsibility for putting my tools in place to keep myself on the beam if they don't change. Right. And that doesn't mean toughen up. Okay? <laughs> sure. It doesn't mean toughen up. That means finding the right toolbox to cope and change and adjust. That's about resilience. That's not about toughening up. We talked about this before we turned on. I hate the terms mentally weak and mentally strong. It's very stigmatizing mm-hmm. because it means you have to be one or the other. And if you're not one, you're the other. Right. And so when we talk about resilience, different people have different resilience scales and will need different coping skills to adjust to the slowness of change or the lack of change in their environment. 
Right. There's tons of stuff out there now, right? There's a Zoominar, I call them Zoominar, there's a Zoominar or a webinar every other day about how to cope in COVID or a CLE or this or that. And take advantage of them. Uh, a lot of them are redundant. Teletherapy, if you, again, privilege, if you have the means. Right. Uh, a lot of lawyers don't. And that's another issue. This privilege persona that all lawyers have health insurance, they don't. Especially on the self-employed side. Absolutely, sure. that's true. Yeah. And a lot of them have such high deductibles that they're de facto uninsured. And so that's a problem as well. But if you have the ability, take and, and you're afraid of stigma, take advantage of teletherapy. There are all kinds of tools out there that, again, in the new COVID environment that you can take advantage of from your home to learn these different coping tools. Well, and I think it's it's interesting because I think a lot of times with these sorts of things, we assume that if you're having a difficult time, whether it's anxiety or depression or substance abuse or, or whatever it is, that you're supposed to fix it yourself. We think that normally. And then, you know, in the legal profession, I think it's exacerbated. And I heard a doctor say this week, actually, she said you would never look at a diabetic and say to them, you know, you can just will your insulin down. Like, just think real hard and your insulin will go back to normal. And she said the same thing with like asthma. You'd never say to an asthmatic, if you just think hard enough, you can get your breathing under control. There are sometimes when you need something beyond just trying to think about it differently. What is the linchpin to all of that? Allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Exactly. And accepting that you can't do it all yourself. That's right. Allowing yourself to, to open yourself up to being helped for one moment. Right. Facing that stigma. And, and that's scary. It, it, it's scary. I get it. I've never uh, sky jumped, but I'm told the worst part is the weightless list pushing yourself off that initial moment. And then you realize, hey, I'm okay. Right. I didn't fall. Right. And that is a scary moment to get through in, uh, with regards to stigma. But there are resources out there. And I mean, if you're struggling, if you're a lawyer, and now this would be more for lawyers and law students. There's the Lawyer's Depression Project. Uh, do you even know what your lawyer's assistance programs do? I get people all the time worried that it's not confidential and they're going to get at it's going to get out. Well, it is confidential. No matter what some guy who told a guy who told a guy, <laughs> they are confidential. There are your 12-step groups. If you're not into the 12-step things, there are other types of mutual aid. There's smart recovery. If, you're, if you need religion as part of your recovery, there's celebrate recovery. There are all of these things, and a, mo a lot of these resources are on your Lawyer's Assistance Program website. Do you even know what your Lawyer's Assistance Program does? That's a great place to start. And I'm going to try to have some of the links to some of these things on the show notes because I think it's, it's really helpful. I've heard a lot of folks say that, you know, the only person that can help yourself is yourself, right? But what do you do? I agree with that. Oh, you don't agree with that? No. Okay. Well, then good, because that's part of my question. Because I was going to say, what do you do if, I mean, we've, we've told some stories about, you know, you've seen people engage in behaviors that you know were inappropriate. I've seen people engage in behaviors that made me worry for them. Like, what do you do if you're not the person that's doing the behavior, but you're observing it and it's someone you care about? So whether it's a spouse or someone at work, or you're seeing someone do things, not necessarily, you know, Coke ragers, but like maybe drinking too much, maybe not eating enough. And you take it upon yourself to learn how to speak to them about it in a non-judgmental way. There are plenty of resources about how to speak to family members. I get emails about this all the time. 
How do I, it's not just a fellow lawyer, it's a lawyer with a, with a son or a child or a, or a brother or a sister. How do I speak to them? How do I approach this? They're going to get mad. They're going to judge me. They're going to scream. And yeah, well, you can't control that, right? All you can control is how you approach it. Right. Yes. Learn how to approach it in a non-judgmental way. There's oodles and oodles of literature on this. You can either sit back and watch it happen, or you can take it upon yourself to spend a few minutes. Or reach out to people who can reach out to a therapist who can explain to you how to reach out to a family member. Reach right. out to someone in Al-Anon. And so there are, there are ways to do this. Uh, and that is help, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. That is why I disagree that you can't help somebody. What, what you can't do is make somebody go into abstinence. What you can't do is make somebody recover, but you can help them. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. If there's someone, and you touched on this earlier, but if there's someone who's listening, who's thinking that bits of this interview remind them of their own behavior, or they think they need help, what advice do you give them? And this also kind of goes back to, and I understand it's a question that we can never really answer, but like, where is the line? Is it just a feeling like, I feel like I'm drinking too much. I'm worried. Cause again, not everybody has the moment where they, where they wake up and they weren't sure what they've done. Like sometimes it's just. Write it out, Kelly. What does your life look like? Your personal life? What is, what is, what is your life capital look like? Your mm-hmm. personal relationships, your day-to-day schedule, your work relationships. How's your life at home? How's your life with your kids? What does that look like? Write it out and look at it. What, is your, what do you feel like when you get up? Start keeping a diary of all of these things and take an actual hard look at what your life looks like. I saw in your book where you said that you had kept a journal and you found that really, really helpful. I, I do think, yeah, I think a lot of people, especially those of us who went into the law because we like words, um, we like to read and write and research. I think that's really valuable because it's, it's how, you know, some of us only believe it if it's written down. And again, we have the self-awareness issue and this is where writing it out helps, right? It allows you to step back from it. And it's hard to see stuff in writing. It's like, right. it's like not wanting to, when you cut a video, not wanting to see your face. <laughs> right, right. This isn't hyperbola. I get this all the time from lawyers. I'm high functioning. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing this, doing this. How's your wife life at home? Well, my wife just left me. Right. My kids aren't talking to me. Well, that's not really high function. <laughs> right? right, right. And so when you write it out, you, it forces you to take a harder look at it. Gotcha. If you want to sit there and do nothing, I can't make you do something. But writing out's a good start. Are there any other tools or tricks that you think are helpful, like to kind of help do a self-assessment? Like, is this problematic? I mean, I guess if you're even asking yourself that question, that's a step, right? (laughs) That that is axiomatic. If you're asking yourself the question, it's probably an issue. Okay. But again, what's the self-awareness level, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's called the stages of change. When you ask yourself the question, you just went from pre-contemplation of contemplation. And so it is, what are you going to do now that you're in the contemplation stage? And people go through, people go back and forth. It's like recovery. We say it, it's not the destination, it's the journey, right? People go back and forth. Recovery is not a straight line either. Mm-hmm. And so you can go into the contemplation stage. I, I did that every other morning. This sucks. I'll never drink again. I'll never do another line of blow. What next step are you going to take when you're in that moment and saying, I think I have a problem? This is not quote unquote normal. Right. I think the thing I loved most about the book and your story and talking to you is that I think that when you're in a place where you feel like things aren't going to get better, it can be kind of self-directed. Like you've told yourself it's not going to get better and, and it's hard to see how it can get better. 
But the cool thing about your story is how it did get better. Like I will, I can, I will tell you my favorite part of the story, uh, your entire book was when you talk about thinking that your girlfriend's going to leave you. And then the next part of the book is talking about how you proposed because you're still together. And I love that because I think that the idea of hopefulness is sometimes lost in these dark times. And again, whether it's anxiety or addiction or whatever, the thing is we don't want to talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, we assume that it always ends in a bad way because we hear the bad stories. You see the movies that don't end well. Thoughts are not facts, right? Right. And, And your story, I mean, it's not over, obviously. It's hopeful. And I think that's really encouraging. Well, I appreciate that. And there's a say, uh, addiction may not discriminate, but recovery does, right? I want to be uh, not intellectually dishonest here. And that, again, I went through a lot of this with a lot of resources that I just didn't take advantage of them. Uh, right. A lot of people, even lawyers, don't have these resources and may feel hopeless. And it's hard not to feel hopeless, especially with depression, when you're right in the middle of it. And people are telling you, snap out of it. There's hope. <laughs> right. Well, if I thought there was hope, I wouldn't be depressed. Right. Absolutely. Don't tell me there's hope. It just that, that's not the way to handle things. Right. They should be handled with empathy, with compassion, with community. Agreed. Well, thank you, Brian. This has been so thoughtful. And hopefully your story will continue to make a difference in the lives of professionals. I know that I've, I'm always struck by how passionate you are about this, not only like on social, but how you you bring attention to stigma. And I've seen you call out people or topics where people will be kind of careless with their words and you'll say, think about it this way. And I think that's important, just learning how to think about things differently and thinking about the way that we say things and the way that we respond to people. So I really appreciate not only your your presence on social, um, but you're taking the time to, to chat with me today. I appreciate it too, Kelly. And again, there are plenty of resources. I've named some of them. One I left out is the Lawyers Depression Project out of New York. It's open to lawyers and law students. But there are plenty of resources out there and you can reach out to me and awesome. I will give you the resources. My listeners can find out more about you um, on your website, which is briancuban.com. And uh, you guys can also buy his books there. And I'll also have some of these links that we've talked about in the show notes so that you can obviously reach out if you need help. That's great, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you and have a wonderful day and wonderful week. You too. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at TaxGirl. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.